Good morning. I'd like to ask you to turn to the fourth chapter of Second Kings. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 42. Second Kings 42. We've been looking at the life of Elisha for uh, some time now. And as I mentioned, when we first began this, uh, this series of studies, Elisha's life is uh, a ministry of miracles, uh, one after another. That uh, perhaps characterized his life and work more than, than any, other, any other aspect of it. And as I said, these miracles are a manifestation of the character of God. God is always at work, but he's at work in the background, and we're not, not aware of uh, what he's really like and what he's doing. As Jesus said, my, my father is working. He's always at work. But uh, we don't see him at work. But from time to time throughout history, and particularly during the time of Elisha and Elijah and during our Lord's time, he broke through. He stepped out of the unseen world, and he acted in in ways that are that are visible, and as we look at these uh, so-called miracles, these interventions in natural order, we come to see something of the way God is always working. And then, as I also indicated, the uh, the miracles are all symbolic, though they operate on the physical realm. Uh, they have uh, profound spiritual implications. They uh, they're lessons. They're in, they're they're allegories, their analogies, their illustrations of what God is doing on, a, on another deeper level uh, in our lives. And these stories uh, touch us deeply. I have some friends that are working in the realm of artificial intelligence. They're trying to teach computers to think like human beings. And as they tell me, the real problem is that human, human beings don't think like computers. Uh, we're not altogether rational. We sometimes think with our hearts. As Pascal said, uh, the heart has reasons that reason doesn't have. And uh, these stories uh, tend to touch our hearts in ways that abstract concepts don't. That's why I, I love these Old Testament accounts. And I particularly enjoyed my own studies in the book of Elisha because I think I've seen some things about God that I've never seen before, and they've touched me in ways that I've never been uh, been touched before. Now let's look at this uh, story. It's very brief, just three verses. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain. grain some of the translations say from the first fruits, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate and sure enough, they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Now, if you read this uh, story carefully, you'll see that Elisha really did not perform a miracle on this occasion. He simply predicted one, which, as you think about it, is all any human being can do. 
we uh, speak of Elisha as a miracle worker, but in one sense, Elisha never worked a miracle. Elijah never worked a miracle. Even our Lord never worked a miracle. Our Lord himself said, I don't do anything of myself. The miracles didn't come from him. They didn't originate from him. He said, I only do what I see my Father doing. Everything our Lord did was done out of that sense of uh, awareness of the Father's work. And that's true of, of Elisha. He only saw what God was doing. He had that capacity of faith to see beyond the seen to the unseen realm of reality. And he observed what the Father was, was doing there. That's why he was called a seer. Because he could see into the unseen uh, realm. Now, what Elisha did on this occasion is simply to predict what, what God was going to do. That is, he, he, he told the man from Shalashan, he told his servant what he saw God doing. I read an interesting verse in, uh, in the Gospel of John while I was doing research for this passage. I'm sure I read it many times, but it just did not uh, strike me as it did this on this particular reading. It's a story about... Uh, crowd of people that were gathered around the Lord in the region where John the Baptist had originally ministered along the Jordan River. John had been dead for a couple of years. The people gathered to Jesus and they said uh, on that uh, particular occasion uh, something about John. They recalled his ministry and they said, John didn't work any miracles. He was no miracle worker. But everything he said about Jesus was true. And I thought, oh, what a wonderful thing to have said about, about us. We're not miracle workers. We live very ordinary, uh, commonplace, uh, forgettable lives. Uh, we're, we're easily forgotten. But I would hope that someday people would say about you and about me, you didn't work any miracles. You know, there was no exceptional intelligence there. There was no particular talent. However, everything she or he said about Jesus was true. That's all we can do is tell people what we've seen and heard about Jesus and what we have touched and handled of him. You see. It was true of John the Baptist, and it was, it was true of, of Elisha. Now here comes this uh, man from Shalashah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of uh, bread. Uh, Shalashah in a better time was uh, was was simply called Shalashah. Back uh, in the period of the judges, there was an area of the land of Palestine up in the north, up in Israel, that was called the land of Shalashah. But it had been renamed Baal Shalashah during the apparently during the reign of Jezebel. As you know, she made Baalism a state religion, and apparently the people in that region adopted the name Baal Shalashah out of devotion to her uh, to her deity. The Shalashah is actually a number. It's the Hebrew number three. And uh, as you know, I've pointed out a number of times in the ancient world, numbers are highly symbolic. The Semitic people, the Canaanites as well as the Israelites, uh, attributed uh, great significance to numbers. We don't. They, they do. And, and the number three signified a, a full cycle, completeness, something brought to an end, probably because it's the first Hebrew, uh, it's the first plural number in all of these Semitic languages. Two is not plural, it's dual in these languages. And uh, three is the first complete plural number. So uh, 
it had that significance, completeness, and I, and I think uh, it had some significance to the Baal worshippers of, of Baal Shalashah. That Baal's the one that rounds things out. He's the one that completes us. He's the one who, who gives us what we need for for life. He's the one who who is enough. You see. But of course, Baal didn't even exist. There, there was no real god by the name of Baal. There was an idol or a series of idols. Each community had its own idol. But Baal was a non-entity. He was a non-god. He, he didn't exist at all. Remember in 1 Corinthians when we were studying Paul's comments about uh, idol worship and offering meats to idols, and he said, and I, there are no idols. There are no gods. There's only one god, and and, and, and that's our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. There are no other gods. Oh, he says, there are demons behind the idols. We'll grant you that. There are spiritual entities there that that have uh, that have uh, an influence upon our lives, but, but they're not gods. They're just demons. And demons can't really do anybody any good. They never do any good. All they can do is take the good that God does and use it and distort it in various ways. They're not creative. Only God can create. See, the Canaanites and the Israelites who were devoted to Baal thought that it was Baal that brought the, the weather into, into Palestine, the, the storms from the west that swept across the Mediterranean, watered the crops, the early and latter rains, and brought fertility to the soil, brought fertility to their families, and brought fertility to their flocks, and gave them wealth and influence and power. They attributed all of that to, to Baal, but you see, it wasn't, it wasn't Baal, because Baal doesn't exist, and it wasn't the demons, because the demons don't have any good purpose in mind for us. It was God. It was God who caused it to rain on the just and the unjust, you see. see it's God who gives every good thing in our life. It's God who gives us love for our children and grandchildren. It's God who gives us our children and our grandchildren. It's God who gives us love between a, a man and a woman. It's God that gives us love and joy and laughter and enjoyment. All of those things come from him. He is nothing but good, and everything in the world that's good comes from, comes from him. Gives us our bodies, gives us our minds, gives us our souls, gives us our emotions, gives us our background, gives us our intellect, gives us our opportunities, gives us our education, gives us the power to make wealth, Deuteronomy says. It all comes from him. And isn't it odd that we take the minds that God has given to us and we use them to formulate arguments against God? And isn't it odd that we take our bodies that are intended to be filled and flooded with the Spirit of God and used for his purposes and we prostitute them on ourselves so we, we use them for our own uh, enjoyment? Isn't that odd? And God keeps on loving us. That's perhaps the oddest thing of all. One of my favorite stories and one of those pictures that touches me so deeply is the story of Hosea. You know about Hosea. He was the preacher with the unfaithful wife. and He, he loved her with all of his heart. And she didn't love him. She loved a lot of other people, but she didn't, didn't love Hosea. And he tried his very best to, to show that love to her, and she kept chasing after her other lovers and she actually left home, began to live with some of her, her, her lovers, and, 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 and Hosea supported her during that time. And one day in 
Perhaps in anger she said, I will go to my lovers who give me my bread and my drink. And Hosea said out of his sorrow that she didn't even acknowledge that it was I who gave her her bread and her wine and her oil and her gold and her silver, which they made into Baal. And here's one of these breakthroughs in Scripture where you, you, you see what's behind the picture, that God is like Hosea and Hosea is like God and, and Gomer is like us and we're like Gomer and we take all the good things of life that God bestows upon us and we use them for ourselves and we think we're self-made men and women and and it's God who's given us all of these things. I was listening the other night to some well-known professional athlete who was talking about his value and worth in terms of numbers and, and uh, how, how good he was at what he did. And I thought of David's words, By my God, I have leaped over a wall. By my God, I have run through a troop. David knew how to give credit where credit was due. Yes, David was an incredible athlete. I really believe that. But he recognized that these gifts came from God. Like Rush Limbaugh says, we have talent on loan from God. If there's anything good about us, it comes from God. He's the one who gives us the power to make wealth. He's the one who gives us every good and perfect thing. We need to give credit where credit is due. Well, the man from Shalashah did. He knew where his bread and butter came from. And he acknowledged with gratitude the gift that God has given to him. He worked the soil. He planted the seed. He irrigated the crops. He fertilized the fields. He reaped the harvest. But he knew that it was God who gave him the strength to do so and, and the rewards of, uh, of his labor. And so he brought... The first fruits to Elisha. Uh, so, some of the translations uh, say something else, but it's it's the offering of the first fruits that was given. And the first fruits was the ten percent off the top that godly Israelites gave to acknowledge the fact that God had given them everything that they that they had. The whole harvest belonged to God. They gave the top ten percent to the priests and Levites in Israel. That law is spelled out in, in the Old Testament clearly. They took the best of the produce and they gave it to the priests and the Levites for their support because the priests and Levites had no inheritance in Israel. That is, they had no land, so they couldn't support themselves. So they were supported by the populace that bring these gifts to them. And, and because there were no priests and Levites in Israel, they had all defected to the south under Jezebel's and Jehoram's uh, reign. Uh, he brought it to Elisha, who's clearly said to be the man of God here. He was the one who took the place of the priests and the Levites in, in Israel. Now, here's a substantial gift at a, in a time of drought. Remember, I pointed out uh, last week that this was a hard time for everyone, and the sons of the prophets were experiencing difficulty just like the, the rest of the uh, people in that area. Elisha wanted to share what he had with, uh, with his extended spiritual family, the people, as he calls them, the sons of the prophets and their, their wives and and their children, and he had the same attitude as the man from Baal Shalashah. He wanted to share his bounty. His servant, who was probably Gehazi, this uh, stingy, mean-spirited man that we're going to run across next week in the story of Naaman the leper, and 
whom we've already begun to see was not a man of faith. We saw him earlier in the story of the uh, widow or the uh, woman whose, whose child died. He said, that's not practical. There isn't enough to go around. There's enough for you, and this would sustain Elisha and the servant for a long period to come, but there wasn't enough to share with everyone else. As he put it, why this, this wouldn't feed a hundred hundred men. He's probably thinking in round numbers of the sons of the prophets and their wives and their children and others that were associated with that group. There simply isn't enough to go around. Elisha had to command him to feed the, uh, the people. He says, feed the people, and, but he includes a promise. For, he said, and this, he points out, is a saying of God. This is a revelation. It's an oracle. He uses the introductory formula that you very often find when God himself speaks directly. For thus says the Lord, you shall eat and you shall have left over. And that's a very, very interesting uh, statement. The uh, verb eating, you shall eat, is uh, self-explanatory. But the second uh, expression, have left over, is a very interesting phrase. Literally, it means to have more than enough. It's the word that's used in the book of Exodus when uh, Moses was engaged in building the tabernacle and he was gathering all the materials for the tabernacle and and he asked the people to contribute from their own stores, gold and silver and cloth materials that were necessary to build the, uh, uh, the tabernacle, brass, copper, all the other metals that were used in the manufacture of that, uh, of that piece of equipment. And the people were so generous that uh, they gave too much. And uh, Moses said to the artisans, tell the people not to bring any more because we have more than enough. Same word, exactly. It's translated more than enough in the, in the New International Version. Same form, exactly, that, you, that, that it occurs here. Now, the form itself is very interesting. Grammarians call this uh, what they call, uh, what they say is proverbial usage. In other words, the, the particular way in which this uh, promise is stated, it's an axiom, it's a truism, it's a maxim, it's a proverb, it's a fact, it's something you can, you can count on. And we could state it like this, thus says the Lord, this is a revelation, you shall have enough and more than enough. It's a sure thing. And, and it was. They, they took the bread and they began to break it up into little pieces and there was enough to feed all the sons of the prophets and all of their, of their families. It was true. There was enough and, and there was more than enough. I'm sure as I read through this account, it reminded you of something else in the New Testament. The story of the loaves and the fishes. Uh, it's almost exactly like that story. Even some of the, the uh, conversational interchanges are, are exactly, the, exactly the same. It's the story the little boy said he enjoyed because that's where everybody sits around and loafs and fishes. But uh, it's really, it really is a lesson having to do with, uh, with loaves. 
The story of the feeding of the 5,000 occurs in every one of the Gospels. It's the only miracle in which, uh, in which that's, of which that's true, and that makes it, to me, very significant. The Lord only has to say something one time, but the fact that he said that it's found in all of the Gospels indicates that the, the writers of the Gospels found this to be extremely important, and we do too when we understand what, what our Lord is talking about because it's one of the most important lessons that we could ever learn. The lesson of the loaves is simply this, that God is enough and more than enough to meet our needs. There's just over and above quality to God, this more than element in him that, that we can never get, get enough of. It's interesting what Mark does to the lesson with the loaves because uh, he devotes three full chapters to what he calls the lesson of the loaves. In chapter 6, you have the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I just mentioned that briefly last Sunday. You know the story as well as I. The Lord was trying to get away from the crowds. The crowds wouldn't let him get away, and they followed him to this desolate spot. He saw them as sheep, not having a shepherd, so he began to teach them many things. He taught them through the day. At the end of the day, they were hungry, and so the Lord asked the disciples to feed them. Almost identically, the command that he gave to Gehazi, feed the people. Disciples said what Gehazi said, there isn't enough to go around. So the Lord gave thanks. I say, for what? <laughs> that there was enough to go around. There was more than enough. As you, you know, the story began break the pieces off, and Mark's very clear that as he broke the pieces, they multiplied. And they distributed the food to 5,000 men and plus women and, and children. They just numbered the men on that particular occasion. And there were, how many baskets were left over? How many baskets? Twelve. Why twelve? One for each one of the disciples. I believe the disciples themselves had taken their uh, backpacks, these uh, baskets that they wore on their back, dumped them out, and uh, that's what they used to distribute the food. And when they got through, each of the disciples had a, a basket full of bread. Enough and more than enough. And uh, you know the story. The Lord was still trying to get away, and so he took a long walk. The disciples got in the boat, and they started across the uh, Sea of Galilee, and the storm struck, and they were about to sink. And the Lord walked across the water, got into the boat, spoke a quiet word to the wind and the waves, and the sea became like glass. And John adds an interesting note. He says immediately they, they were at the shore. They didn't even have to row. They were miraculously transported across the, the, the sea to the other side. They were in much better shape than when they were merely rowing with no storm. And uh, Mark says they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves. What, what's the lesson of the loaves? He's more, and he's more than enough. The next incident in Mark's gospel is the story of the, not the next, but, but in, shortly afterward is the story of the feeding of the 4,000. How many were, how many baskets were left over after the 4,000 were fed? This is a less well-known story. Seven. So again, the disciples get in the boat and the Lord begins to instruct them and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He's talking about the performance trap, this idea that Something we do, some ministry we're engaged in, some 
righteousness that we're pursuing is going to endure us to the heart of God. And the Lord wanted to explain to them that there's nothing we can do that will endure us to the heart of God because he already loves us completely. Can't love us anymore. So nothing that we do or leave undone is going to affect that relationship. He want, that's what he wanted to teach them. But, but as he was beginning to teach, it dawned on them they'd forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf between us. Between them. And, and one said to the other, what are we going to eat? And Jesus looked at him, I'm sure, with a, with a twinkle in his eye. And he said, uh, you haven't learned the lesson of the loaves. See, the lesson of the loaves is that God is enough and he is, he is more than enough. As I'm sure you know, the Lord's name is Yahweh. That's, that's his that's his name. That's his personal name, or Jehovah in some translations. Most grammarians agree that the, the name Yahweh means I am. Theologians uh, tell us that it means he is the self-existent one. He's the one that uh, needs nothing. He, he's complete in himself, and that's true, but there's that explanation does not really touch my heart. What touches my heart is the realization that he is whatever I need. That's what he is. He's enough, and he's more than enough. Best time to learn that lesson is when you run out of something that's essential, like love. When you just can't conjure up enough love for the person that, uh, that you're with. Or when you need forgiveness, when try as you might, you cannot forgive someone who's wronged you so terribly. Or when you need patience with someone who's so irritating and who keeps irritating you and you keep losing your temper. And you just run out of the capacity to be what you know you ought to be in that situation. You see, that's the essential thing. God never promises to make us rich. He never promised to give us more than enough money. He never promises to put us in clover. It's not what we're here for, but what he does promise is to make us fruitful and to place into our lives the fruit of the Spirit so that when we need love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness and self-control, he is enough and he is more than enough. That's the lesson of the loaves. Some of you may remember a few years ago a young Chinese woman that came to minister to our, uh, to our women's group. She's a personal friend of, of ours. She told how when she and her husband were living in the Bay Area, they were involved in a Bible study. Carolyn and I happened to be involved in that Bible study at the time. There were probably a half a dozen or more couples in that group and and we met for a couple of years together, got very close to one another. At that time, I don't think there was a single person in that group that didn't desperately want the will of God in their lives and wanted to be used. And over the years, we saw some terrible tragedy strike that group. One man in the group developed a brain tumor and, and died. In the case of another couple, the young woman was involved in a terrible automobile accident and was brain damaged so that she became like a little child, and she is to this day. Another, another man lost his uh, fortune. Uh, the woman herself 
who spoke uh, had an autistic child. And uh, Miltini very clearly on that day that she spoke to our women said, you know, God is not the one who did those things. We live in a world where there is a murderous personality out to destroy and maim and ruin, and it's the evil one who's done these things. And uh, she was asked, how could you stand it? Why did these things happen to you? And she said, well, these things helped us to endure the harder tests that came later on. And I thought, that's the lesson of the lows. He's enough. And he's more than enough. The prodigal son said, here I am in the pig pen and and even the slaves in my father's house have more than enough to eat. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 3 when he says, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything you could ever ask or think. He is more than enough. In the fourth chapter of James, James talks to us about how to avoid wars and conflicts. And he says the reason for war and conflict is that... uh, you want your own way. It's the pleasures. He uses the word that, from which our word hedonism comes from. We, we don't want people to f- mess with us. We, we want things our way, when we want them, how, how we want them, and that's what causes wars. It's getting things for ourselves. And uh, James says, that, that's, that's adultery. Uh, gentlemen, would you men want your wife to go next door and ask the next door neighbor, the, the man of the house for food to buy groceries? No, you want to provide. See? That's why James says, I want you to, God wants you to ask him. You have not because you ask not. So you're thwarted. So you're frustrated. So you can't get what you want. Give it up. Ask God to give it to you in his own time and his own way. And you know what James says will happen? He will give you more grace. That doesn't mean you'll get what you want, but what God will fill you with is a sense of peace and quietness of heart that would far exceed the results of getting what you wanted your own way. He gives more grace, you see. Let me tell you another way, and with this I'm done, another way in which uh, this comes home to us, and it's in the area of of our sin. We have this notion that sin disqualifies us forever, and particularly there are certain kinds of sins that are particularly heinous, and uh, we'll never get back into, into God's great good graces again. We all have relationships with people in which uh, we think erroneously. I can forgive you, but we'll never get back what we used to have. There will always be a little bit of coolness, a little bit of aloofness, And we can never really get as close as we were before. That's what we think. But you see, that's not not true with God. Not only will he give us back what we had before in terms of our relationship to him, but our relationship to him can be better because of our sin. Now, that's a novel idea. Sin, God can even use sin, you see, for good if we're willing to confess our sins, if we're willing to approach him with humility and contrition. Oh, we might not have back the position that we had before. There are certain things we may not be able to do in this world, 
But in terms of our relationship to God and our impact upon others, we can have much more than we had before. Think of David, for example. David fell for his best friend's wife, Bathsheba, and committed adultery with her. One thing led to another, became a murderer, a liar, mass murderer. His life came unraveled until Nathan faced him with a sin. And uh, David repented of it. And in Psalm 51, he says, Now I can teach transgressors your ways because God had a, David had a deeper understanding of the grace of God than he had ever had before. See, before he sinned so terribly, before he acknowledged his sin, David was very hard on sinners. Remember the story that Nathan told, the trumped-up story of the man who stole the little lamb, and, and David was incensed. He must pay back sevenfold, he said. You know, matter of fact, he wanted to take his life. Stealing sheep wasn't a capital offense in Israel. David was very harsh on this man. But after he learned God's ways, he could talk about God's wonderful grace and his forgiveness and the And David had a much more profound understanding of the character and the goodness of God than it ever had before. How did that come? It came through his sin. See, that's the lesson of the loaves. It's this idea of much more. It's the abundance of God, his desire to give more and more and more than enough. Paul makes that point in Romans 5 when he points out that, believe us or not, Adam and Eve had a better relationship to God after the fall than they had before the fall. Paul uses that word much more. Because they came out of innocence into an understanding of the goodness and the grace of God. And that can be true of of us as well. That's the lesson of the loaves. I thought of that uh, little chorus which uh, we will sing in a moment. He's more than enough, more than enough. He is El Shaddai. Most of the uh, scholars agree that the word Shaddai is, uh, has the idea of, of enough. He is the God who is enough. He is El Shaddai, the God of all plenty, the all-sufficient one, God Almighty. He's more than enough for me. And that's the lesson of the loaves. Well, let's pray. Lord, forgive us for our small understanding of your goodness and your grace, our tendency to attribute to you the, uh, the littleness that we find within ourselves. It's, it's very difficult for us to comprehend comprehend the the width and the height and the depth and the breadth of your love. Impossible apart from prayer. And so we would ask this morning that you would open our hearts to understand this, this quality that pervades everything that you do, this much more aspect of your character that means so much to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.